This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're listening to The Property Show on the morning run, and I'm Philip C. On today's property show, we are in conversation with Kathy Hirsch-Pasek. She's a professor of psychology at Temple University and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And Helen Hadani, she's a Brookings fellow. Now, both of them lead the Playful Learning Landscapes Initiative, which is an incredible program that brings together the fields of developmental science and placemaking with the goal of improving child and community outcomes. Tell me more about uh, Playful Learning Landscapes. And it's a, it's in a description on the website, it's a, it lies at the intersection of the global cities movement and the movement to optimise early education. You know, Kathy, can you just give us a bit of colour? What is it all about? Sure. What this is about is transforming places where people go, public spaces, and working with architects to create beautiful structures that not only beautify a neighbourhood in a way that the neighbours want it to be beautified and also adds dimensions from the science of learning that allow parents and children to interact in ways that help to build young, build young minds. What, what an interesting concept. I would never think that could make urban landscapes such a great place to learn and grow. You know, people think of it as grey, dreary, a bit more adult in its theme and frame. So I'm really interested to understand how, what inspired that. You know, and Helen, can you share what drove the inspiration of this program and initiative? You know, more and more families, um, you know, the urban people are moving to urban areas and there's more children going up in cities now, you know, with predictions that, that those numbers are only going to rise. But unfortunately, cities are not built for children. Most cities are really stressful, busy places that are not convenient, often not safe for families and young children. And so we really, you know, the broader movement for Playful Learning Landscapes is to really think about how to build more child-friendly, family-friendly cities and to address at the same time these growing inequities in education that we see in so many countries um, around the world, the, U the United States included. And so, you know, as Kathy, you know, alluded to earlier, Playful Learning Landscapes is really, um, you know, a movement, an initiative that is, that offers a, an evidence-based powerful solution to these growing inequities in education, but has this wide range of outcomes. So you have the outcomes from the child development perspective. We know that playful learning landscapes really promotes the kinds of caregiver child communication that supports things like language learning and relationship building, um, encourages talk about numbers and spatial relations. All these things we know that build the strong foundation for mm. young children's learning. But at the same time, it engages communities around the revitalization um, of the public realm and really creates these unique opportunities for intergenerational social interaction and make cities themselves more vibrant um, and livable. So you enrich the learning experience by embedding these learning opportunities at all these dreary, you know, mundane locations. And when I look at your program, so many cool things 
urban thingscape, you know, where you talk about the bus stop, you have the supermarket speak, where you make the daily trip to the supermarket interesting, or even Parkopolis, where it's a public space with math and science learning, and also this ultimate block party. <laughs> Can you share with us, you know, you know, some of the projects which you personally loved and found so enriching to the communities that were embedded there? And I want to ask each of you to share your favourite, in addition to the bus stop, Kathy, that you talked about. Oh, gosh, there are just so many. But I think I, I'm going to go with Parkopolis, which is a human-sized board game that you can put right in the middle of a park. And people can come and play and roll dice. Again, even dice don't have to be as we know them. In Parkopolis, we create fraction dice so that you can jump four and a half spaces or two and a half spaces and you land on a card and then the whole family does something. And it is such a blast to play it. Kids love it. They're jumping on large rulers. They're running through shape zones. And in another of our projects, just to give you another Kathy favorite, uh, would have to be Fraction Ball, mm -hmm. where we repainted basketball courts. And the basketball court now allows you to throw not just three points or two points or one point, but you can throw half points and quarter points. And people love it. And while they're doing it, they're learning how to add fraction. <laughs> Helen, what's your favorite? Oh, that is a hard one. But I'd have to say, I would choose super market speak. I think when I learned about that project, it just, just the simplicity of it um, is so elegant. And, you know, adding signage to supermarkets where, you know, I, I'm a mother of two girls who are now teenagers, but I remember dragging them to the supermarket, you know, on a weekly or daily basis, right? Grudgingly, I presume. Yes, right, right. And they weren't all that interested, but, you know, putting up these signs, just simple signs that you can, you know, print on your home computer and then shows this huge jump in caregiver child conversation, which we know is so important for young children. And, you know, talking about how many colors of apples you see, or where does milk come from, which is not such an easy question these days, right? It can come from yeah. a cow or a soybean or an almond. Almond right? So, yeah. <laughs> or, oh, right. Yes. There's so many answers now. And just seeing how that can spark these conversations, quality conversations between caregivers and children is just, you know, so, so magical. And, and referring back to something Kathy said earlier about the really important piece of community engagement and community input into all these projects. We're now seeing, you know, Supermarket Speak um, was done in areas of Philadelphia, I think in areas of Brooklyn, New York, um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and it's going to in Santa Ana, California, in parts of South Africa. So just seeing how it looks different in these different cities is also really amazing and inspiring. Very interesting stuff. Now, Kathy, when I was looking at your profile, you call yourself a scientific entrepreneur. So I really want to understand the evidence-based research that comes out from all these wonderful initiatives. You know, what are the outcomes you see in the improvement of ex executive function for children as they play around uh, in these wonderful locations? Well, thank you so much uh, for asking. And actually, I have to say that wasn't my term. It was somebody else's term. But <laughs> I love it. But anyway, we have actually studied uh, all of these activities that we just told you about. And when we look at them, we have an observational protocol that we use as scientists to say, what's going on here? Are the kids talking about fractions? Are they talking about number? Are they creating stories? Are they doing the puzzles? And how does it change from before we put these activities in as opposed to after we put these activities in? And how does it compare to what we call a control site or a site that 
is really active, but doesn't have these same well-curated activities in them. So let me give you just a couple of examples. In supermarket speak, you can have a signs up and a signs down condition. In the signs up condition, you get 33% more conversations between parents and children that build language skills than you do when the signs are down. Now you say, well, how can I move that around? I wonder if it would work if we changed it to what we call STEM signs. Signs about science, technology, engineering, and math. Boom. Somebody from another lab, Melissa Libertis' lab at University of Pittsburgh, does that study. And guess what? It jumps 28% that parents and children are all of a sudden talking about math because those are the kinds of signs you put in compared to signs right. down. And finally, would it work in corner stores? Would it work in co-ops, in markets? Susan Hespos just came out with a new paper to say, yep, it really does. And we even know what kind of signs work better. So by studying these, we can not only curate, but we can refine exactly what we need to put into the architectural space to not only beautify it, but to get the most out of it when parents are interacting with children. It's fascinating. And I always wonder when you think about the design of these spaces, does it have to be very explicit that it is learning or do you embed it in a very subtle way? Um, And perhaps, you know, maybe Helen, you know, can you share how is design, how does design play a role to make sure that the learning comes natural, it's intuitive and doesn't feel forced? Because I've seen, you know, literal like a multiplications table in a park. It's very literal in that sense. How do you make it implicit so that it's natural for people to learn? I'll refer back to an example that Kathy gave about this special hopscotch game that's an urban thingscape, right? So the special hopscotch game, um, quick description is that there's stones, a series of stones, and, and children see either one footprint or two footprints um, on the stones. And, and they, they're prompted with, with, a sign, with signage to put one foot where they see two and vice versa, right? So to do the opposite, of what is there. And and the magic of that is that is building what's called executive function skills, building children's self-control and flexible thinking. But they don't realize that. They're just jumping and and playing a game and doing something that, you know, most kids love to do. So that's sort of the sort of magic, I think, of playful learning landscapes is that you you have architects and developmental researchers and scientific entrepreneurs like Kathy coming together to create these playful learning experiences that to children and their families are just that, are playful and fun, but there is science behind them. And so that's sort of the the magic. I'll just add a little bit. What happens when you put a big oversized ruler on the ground? You probably could guess all of you out there, you jump. That's what you do. And that's what your kids do. So the first thing they do is they step at the beginning of the ruler to see how far they can jump. But you see the kid who's standing next to them or their brother and sister needs to see if they can jump farther than the first kid. The minute you're doing that, you don't have to be explicit. You're doing comparison. You're doing math. And what happens if you start on the number two instead of starting on the number zero? Then you're jumping two more feet. Wow. Or two more meters or, you know, once you start thinking that way, you start adding or you can subtract or you can put yourself on a number line. These things are at the core of what we teach as foundational when kids first start school. But there they are, just sitting on a sidewalk, just sitting in a bus. We'll be back 
with more after these messages. Stay with us, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're tuned in to The Property Show on The Morning Run. I'm Philip C. And with me today is Kathy Hirsch-Pasek and Helen Hadani, both from the Brookings Institution in the United States, as we discuss their Playful Learning Landscapes program. It is so literal, but so much is triggered. That, I think, is the, the beauty about the design, right? Where you see something like a very simple ruler, but it triggers so many thoughts. It it, it, it engages on so many levels and so many facets of it. And I, and I find it very interesting that, you know, when I see the examples here, they do work for children, you know, especially between the ages of four to nine. And I wonder whether these things can be expanded as, as, te- as children get older to teenagers and even to adults like myself as we grow older, can these uh, landscapes be adjusted accordingly to SH for different levels of maturity and intelligence? Absolutely. And we're doing that right now. These spaces are very intergenerational. And I think that that's what's so exciting to me about thinking through some of the moves into Asian cultures, but a little more um, collectively oriented than the United States and a little more intergenerational, that um, it's often the case, take China as one example, where many of the public spaces are geared not toward child playground, but adult parks where seniors can go. Well, why can't we mix the two? Wouldn't it be wonderful if the kids and the seniors and the caregivers all had a public space that had ideas where folks could engage and interact, whether it's looking at a mural, whether it's jumping on a ruler, whether it's going through a shape zone, or whether it's putting together a puzzle that's on the side of the road. These can be as complex or as simple as you like. And as uh, many have said to me, why aren't we doing this all over the world? My grandmother would have thought of it. And yes, your grandmother would have thought of it. And that's what makes it both so simple and so Intuitive, yeah. Yeah. And Kathy, you make a very interesting point about the grandmother, which is implying the community. The community is central to get all these things going in your respective neighborhoods and locations. And I think you guys started off at Philadelphia, correct me if I'm wrong, and and you've really gone gangbusters and grown across many cities across the United States. You know, Helen, can you share the experience of engagement? How do you engage community, the the city, the mayor, to basically implement all these initiatives on the ground. Um, But what they've done is really think about different ways, more playful ways to engage the community. So going beyond sort of maybe your typical or more traditional focus group um, to get feedback from the community. So they've created what they're calling a community engagement board game, right? To really think about, again, playful ways for the community to give their, share their ideas of what they want to see in their neighborhood, right? So maybe I know one of the questions in the board Board game is something like, you know, what kind of vibe do you want to create in your in your neighborhood? Maybe it's something really active and really high energy, whereas maybe for other neighborhoods, it's maybe something a little bit more peaceful. Um, and so, again, trying to think of these different ways to engage the community. I love some of the work that's going on currently in Santa Ana, California, where there's a very large Latinx population. Um, and so referring back to the Project Supermarket Speak, they did got some really valuable feedback from caregivers in the community 
about co-designing the types of signs that they're going to put in those supermarkets and how they can be relevant for that community. So talking about um, having signs in the produce section that have questions like, how do you pick the best fruit or vegetable, right? And that it reflects sort of stories that these caregivers told about these passed down techniques for picking, for picking the best produce. So things that are culturally relevant are going to be more engaging for, for communities. Yeah. So then when I think about it, you know, you, you give examples of, you know, these initiatives mushrooming in different locations. Uh, and I always wonder in my mind, how do you scale it? How do you make it global? You know, Cathy, as you were mentioning just now, we want to make this a movement where cities all around the world embrace this. But as you say, it really requires a grassroots, bottom-up approach. You know, where is the role in governments, in funds and all that to help drive this forward to accelerate this uh, ambition and expansion? Yeah, well, thank you for asking that question. It's grassroots in the sense that we really do want the community input on values and desires. So I'm going to actually take you on a tour to tell you an answer to your question. When Helen and I presented recently at an international conference, we started out by asking people from uh, South Africa, people from India, from the United Kingdom, Denmark. We said, what are the values? If you were to say what you wanted to see in your community, what, what's most important to you? And the answers came out, safety, inclusion, belonging. And, and then you keep pushing, say, oh, okay, those are the values that you want to see. What kind of environments or characteristic of people do you want in this environment? Most everyone said, we want an intergenerational group of people. All right, then let's go to the next question. Let's say, where would you want to put something like this if it were in a public space? Now, public space is going to be the key to the answer to your question. Transit hubs. We want to put it on sidewalks. We want it in a dark alley in the center of our city that isn't safe. We want to create something that's a new kind of public park. Now, notice that in each case, I heard the word public. And governments are already investing in these public spaces. Governments invest in community centers. Governments invest in transportation hubs. We invest in roads and we invest in sidewalks and crosswalks. The question is, if we're going to invest anyway, can we invest using principles that can be applied widely to any culture and can be completely inclusive to meet the needs of a particular community? And the answer appears so far to be yes. Yeah, replication is core, I think, to to show. And, and you know, I think when you make and you replicate it in all different locations, the learning compounds and, you know, I think the outcomes are much, much better. And I always wanted to get your perspective. If you if you talk to, you know, the city, is it easier to execute these you know, on the ground uh, programs, if it's a brown field versus a green field development, because green field developments and properties, you can kind of build from scratch and you can kind of orchestrate it a bit better. But is it easier or harder uh, on brown field and green field? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I think that, I think that, I was saying, I, I think you see it in, in both cases. Sometimes you see it, you know, sort of from the ground up, starting from scratch and other places, um, you know, you might have something existing and then you're going to add on something there. I think another important um, 
lesson that we've seen from some cities is trying to take advantage of things that, like Kathy said, cities are already going to build, right? So I think this example comes from Santa Ana, where the city is already planning to put in some of their parks, these sort of water play splash areas, right? So they were already planning to do that. They already have budget for that. They're already, you know, have a schedule for that. And so, but you could do a little twist on those areas and have something where kids can sort of program how far the water splashes or what direction the water splashes. And that adds a little bit of, you know, a STEM STEM learning for kids, right? So just making a little tweak there, which again, it's like, it doesn't add a lot of extra cost. It's not a lot of extra effort, but it takes someone who's part of the design process, part of the process of putting in those new splash parks to know that you can do that. And then to answer your question about um, non, you know, greenfields, because I think in the in the example that Helen just gave, it's kind of a greenfield because they were going to build something new in the park or build a splash park. Take a bus stop. We know, for example, in our city that we have to go around and renew uh, the bus stops or the transportation hubs because if we don't, they'll get old and the infrastructure will deteriorate. That's your perfect moment. When you have the chance to go in there and resuscitate the old bus stop, what are you going to do? The money is already in the budget. Why don't we think broadly about how we can then scale up playful learning landscapes in these spots and create a more beautiful city, and a more exciting waiting space. And I want to just understand, right, this work here is very much mushrooming in the United States. How is it being rolled out in the rest of the world, in particular in Asia? Has there been any traction in in this part of the world? Well, there have been a couple of areas where we've started to have discussions, and I'm really quite excited about the movement into Asia. We've had a number of discussions with folks from the Ministry of Education in Singapore. We have been in contact with a group of folks from China. Uh, In China, it turns out that they uh, have a five-year plan to create more child-friendly cities, uh, and right now no implementation arm for that vision. So uh, I think this could really dovetail beautifully with policy changes that are going to go on there. Uh, We have put some stuff on the ground in in India, I think two or three. One was with the Mumbai uh, bus station at one point. So there has been stuff that's gone on in India, and we have been in conversation with uh, folks in Tokyo about doing some projects. in. So again, we're at the very beginning and Malaysia can sneak in there and be one of the first. Well, you know, I I hope the Malaysian authorities listen to this podcast. Um, (laughs) Kathy and Helen, thank you so much. What a fascinating conversation. That's all the time we have for today's Property Show. Thank you for being on the show, guys. I've been speaking to Kathy Hirsch-Pasek and Helen Hadani, both from the Brookings Institution in the United States, as they share their amazing work on the Playful Learning Landscapes program. I'm Philip C. signing off for the morning run. We have the 10 a.m. news bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise BFM 89.9. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, the business station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.